Welcome back to the Morning Brushback. It is August 4th, 2020. Robert, how are you, sir? I am great. I can't wait for some of these, for some of this talk. Yeah, we're ready. I didn't even announce myself. I'm Dan Blewett. This is the Morning Brushback. We're just ready to get into the show because we have a, a great guest. Alan Nathan is here. Alan, how are you? Hey, very good, Dan. Good to see you again. So Alan's a friend of mine. He is also one of the, the world's experts on baseball physics, a now-retired professor at the University of Illinois. Um, Alan, your background is so diverse. Can you give us a little quick rundown on some of the projects you've been involved in with Major League Baseball? Because you've been in so many of them. I know with the, the BB core standards, the new baseball seam standards, the old, you know, just the composition. Can you tell us a little bit about your background with baseball physics real quick? Sure. Uh, I've been sort of at this for over 20, it's amazing, but it's over 20 years now that I've been doing this. And I initially started doing it just, you know, it seemed like a fun thing to do. And um, I, I got involved early on with, with trying to understand how baseball bats work from a, from a real physics point of view. And that actually then got me involved with the NCAA when they were working to try to regulate the performance of non-wood bats, so aluminum composite bats. And uh, so I was with them for really quite some, for, I don't know, some 10 years or so. And out of all of this came what are now known as the BB core bats, which we came up with a new method for regulating bat performance. Um, based partly on my own research uh, that I had done and uh, others on the committee. And uh, we proposed it to the NCAA and they seemed to think it was okay. And anyway, it went up the chain of command and it was finally approved uh, sort of late in 2008, I think is when it was approved, but they wanted to give the bat manufacturers time to develop new bats. So it was first implemented in 2011 season for NCAA and 2012 season for high schools and it's the standard now it's the bat that people use and it's uh the idea was to come up with a bat that performs more or less like a wood bat so it performs maybe just a little bit better than wood left unregulated these bats would vastly outperform wood leading to yeah. um, ridiculous numbers of home runs high scoring games uh possibility of injuries to pitchers from balls hit back through the box it's um, funny that as you're talking about <laughs> i'm thinking about the history of bats as i was a kid and there were some bats that were just insane that when the, you just like barely hit them they just go bobby do you remember the c cores and the z cores yes the best they're the best crazy. the red lines the oh my the god tpx <laughs> like the, the white <laughs> I big mean, tpx letters have all went 700 feet if you did yeah wanted. At, Alan, did you ever test any of those? Do you remember any of these? Like the C-Core was like this beautiful, really tapered, silver shot-peened bat, and the Z-Core looked like a <laughs> like a, I don't, I don't like remember, a caveman's bat. Yeah, I don't remember that one uh, specifically. But one of the things I do remember, though, is uh, when composite bats, so this was way back maybe in 2001, when composite bats first started hitting the market. Mm -hmm. Connection. And uh, yeah, uh, so I think the... I'm trying to remember the name of the company that was one of the early ones there. I think Easton put out the first one where it was the two-piece composite. Is that the one you're talking about? Uh, no, I'm not talking about that. So I'm talking about bats that are not metal, but they're uh, they're made oh, out of these carbon gotcha. fiber materials. Gotcha. And 
the bat, you know, the, the, they're very, very clever engineers, these uh, bat manufacturers. They, they figured out a way to even outperform aluminum. And then it was pretty clear that in order to keep things under control, you really had to figure out a way to regulate them. And so anyway, early on, I, I, was, under, I was working with, uh, with the Amateur Softball Association, actually, uh, and they were doing some field testing of bats. And I, I, I had the opportunity to swing one of these uh, composite bats, and it was very, very clear that, that <laughs> man, this thing was lively. Remember that copperhead bat with the wires going through it? Well, you know, there one of the th- some people came up with very, very clever ideas. I don't know if this is the, if this is that one. Uh, you know, when you when 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 the batter doesn't hit uh, the ball on the sweet spot of the bat, it stings. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody came up with a way to uh, essentially dampen out the the uh, the, uh, the vibrations, which are what's causing the sting. It was some feedback. So basically the idea, it's like noise canceling headphones, okay? Yeah. Except as applied to a bat vibration. Um, and, and so it, maybe that's what that, that refers to. I'm not sure. But. Well, there was also the air attack, which I think I swung when I was maybe, I want to say 15, 14, 15, but that was an aluminum bat with a compressed air bladder inside of it that was really rigid. Do you remember that one? I I, uh, I I remember, remember it. I don't remember anything <laughs> at all about how whether that was oh, a good idea had, or a bad it, idea it had, or what. It had some pop. It had some pop. <laughs> like you know, the, very very early on in in the metal bat business, uh, people recognized that titanium bats would be would be uh, uh, perform extremely well, and they were banned very very early on. Way back hmm. in the nineties, they were already banned. Um, but anyway, so the the BB core bats had exactly the effect that they were supposed to have. Namely, it reduced the number of home runs and reduced the offense in general. So much so that that coaches were complaining about it. And so, uh, a few years after that, maybe it was 2014 or 15, they decided that they need to get some of that offense back into the game again. And that's where they started playing around with the baseball. Yeah. So the prior to whatever year that was, I think maybe it was 2015. If you were to pick up an NCAA ball, the seams on that ball would be noticeably higher. You could feel, you could just feel the difference very, very easily. And, uh, through several, uh, experiments that were done as well as just anecdotal information uh people realized that the high seams made the ball carry less well so the ball didn't carry as well with with high seams so one way to get back uh, some of the offensive numbers is to switch to a a flat seam ball Uh, and so in fact that's what they did in 2015 and so then home runs went back up again maybe by 20 percent or so so they lost about a factor of two in home runs by switching the bat and then they got another 20 percent back again by changing the ball and uh and they're so they're basically using what is uh what is essentially the minor league uh ball for NCAA play 
Alan, oh, if I'm hearing if I'm hearing you correctly, I think you agree with me that we need to bring back those trampoline bats <laughs> that make the ball go 700 feet. Well, you know, it, it, it would be fun, but uh, uh, I was on the other side of that issue. I, I, quite frankly, I had no horse in that race at all. Really, I was just trying to do provide the best science that I could to them. Uh, I'm I'm actually myself much more of a traditionalist and I would just be quite happy if the whole world used wood bats. Uh, Me too. <laughs> so if, if it was feasible, I think it would make way more sense. Well, I'm not so sure it's not feasible. I mean, you know, the amusing thing is that the original reason for going to aluminum bats was an economic reason. You could, you don't break them. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Right, but now consider if you want to buy a high quality aluminum or composite bat, you, I mean you're paying three or four hundred dollars for it. Okay, yeah, they're getting up to five and, now. It's crazy. Yeah, and and the composite bats, uh, it's, it's very hard to break aluminum. Of course, uh, you can dent it, and then it's not usable anymore. Composite bats are more are a bit more fragile, I believe. So. Again, the economic reason is somehow it doesn't seem to be there any longer. Bobby, let's talk about that. So I remember even back when I was still hitting, basically the better bat you got, the more fragile it seemed to be. And how fast were you guys cracking bats at Northern Illinois back when you were playing college? Everybody, every hitter on the team cracked at least one per off season and then probably (laughs) one during the year. That's yeah. crazy. So, you know, and the, by the way, the reason for that is quite simple. To What you're trying to do with the aluminum bat is you, you want this so-called trampoline effect that Bobby mentioned. And the, you get more and more of a trampoline effect the thinner and thinner the wall of that bat is. Mm-hmm. And so, the, and the thinner it is, of course, the more easy it is to, to, to dent or crack. Even. Uh, yeah, we were so, going through bats like, yeah. I mean, we, we had Rawlings as our dealer and Aww, those plasma well no the plasma the plasma was was a dangerous bath if you were if you could hit the ball hard because yeah. that was i mean we were cracking those things one a week yeah you know so a lot of the a lot of the technology of trying to build a better aluminum bat was actually just trying to uh develop new alloys of aluminum that uh that you could make thin that would be you know, that would give you the trampoline effect, but without breaking. You want it to bend but not break. In effect. Yeah. So does that mean that aluminum composites or aluminum alloys have become more brittle over time, or like how do that? How do they find? Because obviously they can't dent that quickly. So. Oh, I don't know that. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a materials person, so I don't know exactly what they do. But uh, but that 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 was the direction they were headed. But then. With composites, though, it, it opened up a whole new realm of, of possibilities. I mean, uh, so you can, there's all sorts of things that you can do with composite bats that you simply can't do with, with uh, a metal. Well, so I know that. Go ahead, Dan. In the softball world, guys roll the bat, quote unquote. So they'll That's put it between these things right. and like cracks and I guess destroy right. something within the internals. I don't exactly know what. And that makes break it up hotter the fibers, again. right? To yeah, so, so elasticity. Exactly. So what you want is what you want to have happen to get a trampoline effect is when the ball impacts on the bat, you want that the wall of that bat to compress, just like a trampoline, and you can bounce the ball bounces off it like a trampoline. Um, 
And so there's a property, uh, it's called a compliance, I guess it's called, uh, that, uh, you know, wood has almost no compliance. You can't compress it at all. It's a solid piece of wood. Uh, and you can, you can much more easily do that with, with, uh, with composites. The thing is, so what, what is a composite bed? It's carbon fibers, you know, that are with epoxy, the layers of carbon fibers that are sort of epoxy together. And what happens is after a lot of use, that epoxy starts to break up and the bat gets more compliant, which means you get more of a trampoline effect with use. And uh, so there is this thing called accelerated break-in, ABI, uh, or, or commonly called rolling the bat, where you're accelerating this break-in process by rolling the bat. So instead of, instead of breaking up these, uh, this epoxy and fiber by hitting the ball, you're doing it artificially. And of course, that's illegal. You're not supposed to do that. And, and in fact, when we were coming up with ways to measure the performance of a bat in the laboratory, we had to worry about this break-in process. Uh, we had to somehow take that into account. So we, we had to worry about the fact that the way the bat performs right out of the box, okay, right out of the sealed container, uh, is different than it will perform, you know, after you've used it for a while. It actually gets better. So we had to, we had to worry about that and take that into account. Gotcha. So I want to stay on bats for one second because I okay. use, when I played the last probably three, four years of my career, I used Birch. And the guy and the, the dealer, I, bit, right? Well, Birch, from what I, the way I was described Birch is that Birch has like microscopic pockets in it. And the more you use it, the denser the bat becomes. So it's got a little bit of, it's got like the benefits of maple and the benefits of ash together. It's like got a little bit more flex to it. Um, and actually gets harder as the more you use it. it. Have you done studies on ash, maple, birch, the performance wise? Um, very early on, um, what actually the very first sort of consulting I arrangement I had with Major League Baseball was way back in maybe 2002 or so when, you know, Barry Bonds, when he set the home run record, the single season record, he was using a maple bat. He was one of the very first mm -hmm. users of a maple bat, a so-called Sam's bat. You know, Sam is some guy who builds bats out of his garage somewhere in Canada. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he, he be Sam became famous because of Barry Bonds. And so Major League Baseball asked the question, uh, did Bonds, or in general, is there an advantage uh, to using maple rather than what was then uh, almost exclusively ash. And so uh, we did a number of experiments in the laboratory and the conclusion was there was no real advantage to maple. Um, and, and although I, we didn't look at uh, birch, you said? Birch, yeah. Birch. We didn't look at birch at the time, but there, and there are, there are other woods that, are, that people are also using. But one of the things that I think we did learn was that uh, more or less, all woods seem to perform more or less the same. Certainly, if you hit the ball in a sweet spot, yeah. they're all performing about the same. Now, there are difference. There are differences in durability. Yeah, for sure. And there are different. So, I mean, one of the big, big things that another study that was done with MLB 
was trying to understand the reason why when maple bats break, they oftentimes break and, and, and the pieces go flying apart, as opposed to when, when ash bats break, they just sort of crack and shatter. They don't mm-hmm. go flying into multiple pieces. The old green and, stick, and, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so we gained some, I'm not an expert on these things at all, but we gained some understanding having to do with the grain structure of, of maple versus ash. Um, and it led to some new rules about maple, about the so-called slope of grain. I don't know if you know about that, where uh, you're, the, one of the reasons why the, the bat fractures into multiple parts is because the grain is not straight or the grain is not, the grain is not parallel to the length of the bat. Mm-hmm. So the pieces can shear off uh, when impacted. And so there's a limit now on, on the, the so-called slope of that grain that's allowed. Gotcha. Well, that's so what so we used to essentially look at. The, yeah, the angle between the, the axis of the bat and the, and the grain itself, okay? There's a limit on what that angle could be. That's what we used to look at when you're picking out the bats that the team gives you, the pro stock bats, which usually the trash of the wood <laughs> that they, the further apart the grains were. Those wavy grains. The, yeah, usually in the straighter the grains were, the better the wood. Um, I think there's also rules now on how much you can dry out the wood uh, with maple because that what that was was correct me if I'm wrong that was a thing well I heard that was why we didn't have maple for a long time that drying technology wasn't good enough where we could make it light enough to to basically basically they couldn't cut a 34 inch bat out of maple and have it not less than like 36 ounces or something it was just way too heavy compared to to ash at the time also that like the shat like they were shattering an impact because they were so dry once you got them so dry, they were just shatter because they weren't like if you had on the sweet spot, you'd probably still get that loud, loud crack of the bat. But if you anywhere off the sweet spot, the thing would just shatter. Just explode. Mm-hmm. Pieces. Can you confirm or deny this, Alan? Drying oh, technology. Yeah, yeah. I, my I, expert, I, that's my expert I, science I, opinion. Again, I'm not a I'm not a wood expert, but uh, 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 it sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's it is interesting just how it's changed over the years. So sticking with sticking with bats, you know, I guess what are people paying for when they're? I know you're not a, a consumerism expert, but what are people paying for when they're spending five hundred dollars versus four hundred dollars versus three hundred dollars versus two hundred dollars on a bat? Yeah, Bobby, <laughs> Bobby, 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 go Bobby for, wants go to answer first. that. Uh, colors. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, it's, that's interesting. You say that. Uh, uh, you could ask yourself the following question. If all bats are regulated to perform, you know, so that they can't perform above a certain level, and if all bat manufacturers, being smart people, are building all their bats right at that level, or maybe just barely under that level, then what's the difference among all yeah. the different bats? So that you, you, you ask a legitimate question. So uh, uh, I heard about this test that was done once, uh, you know, some years ago, in which um, they had two identical bats, completely identical bats. One of them was just painted, I don't know, black or something, I don't know. And the other one had some fancy graphics on it. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the people were asked to swing the bats and tell, tell them which one performed better. And the one with the fancy graphics on it was the one that performed <laughs> better, they claimed. Right. And so Look there's good, a lot. Good, there's Look a good, lot. Good. 
there's a lot to what you just said, Bobby. <laughs> well, I think I think when you're picking out a bat too is probably the weight distribution for most of them, whether they're balanced or top heavy or. And that's a new thing too, right? That they actually you can get two different versions of the same model of bat. Is that right? I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it's so new though. I, I, I at least not in the in the last twenty years that I've been sort of following these things. I, yeah, these diff- different bats have different feels, and they could, you know, you could add weight to the knob if you want. You could add weight to the barrel. You know, you have an end cap there. So yeah, it, and 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 this is very much a personal thing with people. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, people want to use a bat that feels right to them, that they, they can easily swing. And some people prefer, you know, generally you're going to have more power, if you like, if you have it weighted towards the barrel, but you're not going to be able to swing it as fast. And yeah. it's sort of the other way around if you have it weighted the other way. So, it, but it's a personal preference kind of thing. Yeah, but but don't, I think, but don't Bobby a couple, I think Dean Marini does this where you can buy the same <laughs> voodoo bat, but it can be end loaded or mid, like that's a new thing where it's almost like variations of the same bat, which they didn't yeah. have that five years ago, right? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if they, if they can specify end loading, you know, even distribution. I know that some companies are doing where the bat mimics the wood models, some of the wood models that are out there, like the, some of the more popular wood models are C two seven one, C two four three, M one ten. Those are like Louisville's models, and they all have different specifications as far as like the C two seven one is pretty balanced. It's thinner it's barrel. A pitcher, pitcher's bat, right there. Yeah, the two forty three is very end loaded. Um, the M one ten's got a thicker handle. So there's, I know they're starting to mimic some of the wood models, which. Obviously, like if you get you walk into a big league locker room, I mean, almost every player's got two or three models in their locker, and and probably a half a dozen brands of that that they're just trying out. Like it's yeah. it's really a feel thing. I mean, it's kind of like golf clubs. I mean, anybody that golfs, you swing different clubs. Like putters, people have different preferences on putters. Same thing with bats. I mean, it's really it's kind of personal preference. Well, Alan, do you so you mentioned that all bats are regulated, and so. Do you think that companies that their their most expensive bat is engineered to be like razor thin away from that regulation standard and the cheaper the bat gets, the farther away from the regulation they are. So if it's like, you know, a hundred percent as illegal, almost illegal as possible that the, the less money you spend, they get, they just don't perform quite as well. I mean, do you think there's any significant difference? Is it going to be 10 feet farther for the best bat other than like their mid tier bat? Yeah. I wish I, could, I wish I could. I wish I could give you a, a knowledgeable answer on that, but I but I really can't. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it could be simply a durability thing. Uh, but no, I'm sure it's I, pri- proprietary data. I'm sure only Easton knows how well each of Easton's you know bat lineups you know or well, bats lineups perform. I think it's also probably how durable the bat is itself like are you gonna what make this bat very very well just durability wise you're just gonna like the little league bats that, that i have like t-ballers using i mean when you hit it it sounds like ding like it just it's like using a uh, uh like a a light pole like it just sounds different everything is different mm-hmm. about that bat yeah but i mean i think there's a lot of validity what you guys both said which is that they probably 
put all their best graphic designers on the best baths just to just to get you to shell out a few more bucks. But yeah, so let's let's shift. So we were talking before we went on air about Mickey Mantle's home run, which uh, Griffith Stadium, which I don't know when they demolished it, but back in 1955, Mickey Mantle swinging right-handed hit a ball out of Griffith uh, out of Griffith Park here in D.C., which is actually relatively close to where I live. Uh, it's been demolished. There's currently a hospital on the site now. But, Alan, tell us a little bit about, about that home run. So it was, it was rumored to be 565 feet, but there was some – there was like a big story about it, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, it was uh, – 53, was, I'm sorry, 1953. It was 19, April 1953, and uh, yeah, it was a windy day, uh, afternoon game – Yankees against the senator, you know, Washington Senators. Uh, Mantle, who, who was a switch hitter, was batting right-handed against left-hander Chuck Stobbs. And he just hit this shot that uh, into left center field. And uh, it, there was a scoreboard in left center, or there's a scoreboard, and then above the scoreboard or, uh, was a, a beer sign, Uh Natty Bow, National Bohemian Beer. Yeah, it's Baltimore's the, beer. I love right, that right, Baltimore's mm-hmm. beer, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and the ball just grazed the edge of that sign, uh, which is right at the back of the stadium. Okay, uh, 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 you know, all the seats were in front of it, nothing in back of it. Uh, and it, it grazed that sign and just deflected uh, off across uh, Fifth Avenue Northwest. I think it's Fifth Avenue Northwest. Uh, and went across, and, and then uh, there were a bunch of row houses along Fifth Avenue Northwest, and it somehow ended up in back of one of those row houses. And so the, so the story goes, Red Patterson, who was the Yankees publicist, was in the uh, press box, and he saw that ball leave the park, and he said he, he, he realized the public relations value of a home run, something hit that far. So he quickly left the stadium to try to find the ball. Instead, he found young Donald Dunaway, a, a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, whatever, kid, African-American, who routinely played hooky from, from uh, school. This was an afternoon, so you know he should have been in school. Uh, he, he was in the stadium, uh, and he left the stadium when he saw the ball hit, uh, and he retrieved the ball. So he retrieved the ball behind this house. Red Patterson found them and gave him a few bucks or some autographs. I don't remember what. And so Red Patterson, uh, he asked him, where did, where did he find the ball? And uh, he found the ball in this particular spot. And they did some measurements. And they determined that the ball went 565 feet. So, um, and various people have looked into this. If you look into the classic book, The Physics of Baseball by, by Robert Adair, he talks about this home run, and he, he thinks that the home run only could have gone about 510 feet or something like that. Uh, and then some other people have looked into it also. So Jane Levy, who was in the process of writing a biography of Mantle, contacted. I never even, I, I knew about Jane Levy because, Levy because she had earlier written a biography of Sandy Koufax, which is a wonderful book, and I had read that. So, uh, so out of the blue, she calls me up one day and says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm researching this home run. Uh, can you help me? 
And so that began a long relationship uh, with Jane Levy. Uh, among other things, we got on the roof of Howard University Hospital, which is where the site of Griffith Stadium was. Uh, and we were surveying equipment and, you know, we tried to locate where home plate was. We tried to, and then we used various means and confirmed, okay, that ball really, if, if the ball really landed where this kid said it landed, it probably really was 565 feet. In the meantime, though, Jane Levy is pounding the pavement trying to find 55 years after the fact, <laughs> Arnold Dunaway. And she eventually found Donald Dunaway. She was so excited when she found Donald Dunaway. She gave me a phone call and put me on the phone with Donald Dunaway. Uh, it was really an amusing thing. Uh, Donald Dunaway has since passed away. He actually had a very rough life. Uh, and he basically gave her, gave Jane, a, a different piece of information as to where he found the ball, which was different than it was before. And the, the interesting thing about it is it's behind these row houses. And so you can actually do some, some, some little calculations. To get over the row houses, it had to at least hit the, the, where it initially impacted, had to be uh, at least at the front of the roofs of those houses. And we know exactly how high the roof was because we had drawings and everything. The houses are no longer there. In fact, if you go along Fifth Avenue Northwest, the last time I was there four or five years ago, uh, it, uh, it was, um, oh, there it is, okay. Yeah, so I'm screen sharing so you can see. Right, right. This was Griffith Stadium. Here, and, here's the Natty Bow thing. Ignore that Mantle was, this is like a different photo. Oh, yeah. This was the it is, Natty Bow sign. A, the Natty Bow sign is here. So yeah, it, it was not an Apo Taco. So. Right, right, right. I'm sitting righty. Uh, scroll back up again, Dan. Uh, uh, okay, the first, so Fifth Street. So if you see uh, uh, the center field or the left center field wall there, Fifth Avenue Northwest runs parallel to that. It's just on the other side of that. So the ball mm -hmm. went over that and probably hit the front of the roof and then bounced into the backyard. Okay. And so when you go through that calculation, you conclude that uh, the ball, uh, at, a at a minimum, the ball went about 535 to 540 feet. Okay. So you see Fifth Avenue Northwest is uh, – 434 Oakdale. Yeah, wow. so this is it. This is the, uh, let me go That's to Sally View. This is Google Maps. Okay. So here's Howard University Hospital. And so I guess home plate was somewhere around here. Um, right. Or wait, the ballpark was face. This is, oh, yeah, yeah. So this is 434 Oakdale. So home plate was somewhere around here. Is that right? Uh, yes. Because center correct. field was yep. facing yep. southeast. Yep. Yeah. So he drove it here all the way over yonder. And so there. Oakdale, insane. yeah. Okay. Anyway, so uh, uh, Oakdale is the is perpendicular to Fifth Avenue, or Fifth 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 Street, Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. Is it Fifth Avenue? Yeah, Fifth Avenue. Um, and uh, anyway, so anyway, well, you go through some calculations, and I concluded that the ball most likely traveled between five hundred thirty-five and five hundred forty feet. Uh, and you know, I wrote an article about it. Uh, and I, uh, I've given a bunch of talks about this because it is a, it's a fun thing to talk about because, you know, especially with old timers, right, who remember Mantle, 
uh, and remember the Mantle legend. Uh, and, th- and by the way, this, this home run is almost what created the Mantle legend. I mean, this mm-hmm. is what made Mickey Mantle so almost a household name. And, and in fact, I think the, the, the words tape measure home run were, came out of this home run. Uh, I, that's, that's when people started talking about tape measure home runs. So it was a fun project to work on, and I got a lot of mileage out of it. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of publicity about it. And it was definitely a fun thing. And it was, it was one of my first times I've actually tried to – this is what, what you might call forensic physics. You're trying to figure <laughs> out what yeah. happened well after the fact. And, uh, you know – yeah. Now, well, this a- is another one. So this one was Mickey Mantle's, which they're saying this was 734 feet, hit off the facade at Yankee Stadium, which, I, I mean, that number is ridiculous. I mean, Alan, so like, yeah. what's, what's the legitimacy of the 734 feet? Oh, no, no, home it's, run? It, it, it's crazy. Yeah, uh, okay, totally, and so totally here's, here, here's, what, here's what's wrong with that. What's wrong with that is that, that people, eyewitnesses even, argue that that ball was was actually still rising as it hit the facade. And that almost surely is not the case. And, yeah. it, and it's a very, very common optical illusion. Uh, psychologists have done experiments with, uh, I, I know some uh, one of these guys who, who's actually done experiments uh, uh, where, where uh, you're asking, you're throwing, you're, you have different projectiles and you're asking people, when is it? when does it reach its, uh, its maximum height? And yeah. when is it, or in other words, when is it starting to come down? And people routinely get that wrong. Okay. So yeah, this, uh, I think, um, I don't know if you remember Greg Rabarczyk used to have this site called hittrackeronline.com, uh, in which he, uh, would track major league home runs. It was one of the best, uh, prior to StatCast. Uh, was one of the best uh, determinations of home run distances. So it's no longer being used. Uh, and Greg actually works for the Red Sox now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he, he did a number of so-called historical home runs, did some analyses. And I don't remember what his number was for that, but it, it, it certainly was not 700 feet. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you said with, with the 565 foot home run, which you said was between 530 and 540. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, people are, have a pretty good familiarity these days with launch angle and exit velocity and, and spin. Those as being like the three, is that the, the main cocktail? For yes. Basically a batter ball's distance, those three. So yes, what does a 535 foot home run require from a launch angle and uh, exit velocity and spin perspective. Yeah. Well, this particular, these numbers may surprise you a little bit. My best estimate was that the, that the exit velocity was something like 112 miles an hour, maybe 113. Uh, and the launch angle was about 30, 31 degrees, which is about optimum. So we have a lot of stat cast data these days that tell us that the optimum launch angle is, 27, 28, 29, 30 degrees, somewhere in that range. You know, it's a long way. It's not 45 degrees and it's not 20 degrees. So it's around 30 degrees. So he hit the ball at about the optimum launch angle. But at 112 miles an hour, you know, uh, 
Giancarlo yeah, Stanton, Stanton, yeah, Stanton who, yeah, crushed he, that recently. He 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 hit 120 uh, earlier mm-hmm. a, a few days ago or so. So um, uh, the so what's unusual about the Mantle home run is that it was very heavily aided by the wind. So there was a pretty stiff 20 mile per hour wind. That is a that's a lot of wind blowing out. And there were gusts that were even higher. So when I did my analysis, I, I since you don't even know about the gusts, I just simply assumed it was a 20-mile-per-hour wind. Without the wind, that ball would have traveled still a long ways, but I think I estimated something like 460 feet, which is, you know, it's a pretty good shot, but it's not yeah. 500 feet. It's not over 500. So I one time, I, I put some numbers in uh, – a few years ago and said, all right, if you look at StatCast data, if you look at exit velocities, they're pretty much topping out at about 120. And that's pretty unusual. But, you know, if you, if mm-hmm. you take 120 as being the hardest anyone has ever hit a ball, uh, and then you put in the optimum launch angle and some reasonable amount of spin, you find that uh, without any wind, about the longest anyone can hit a fly ball without wind is about maybe a little over 500 and that you know that's about right it seems i mean you see a lot of balls hit you know in the high 480s for you know sometimes 490 not sure we have one without wind over 500 but so but five if, if someone were to press me against the wall and say what's the longest anyone can hit a home run without wind i would say about 500 feet and, and I think it's based on pretty, pretty good information. And so I remember you gave in one of your physics talks at Sabre Seminar. So one of the reasons I especially like Alan is that um, he, when he presents on physics, he makes sure that everyone in the room, all the lay people like myself, I don't have any background in physics, can understand what he says. And Bobby and I are fighting the good fight in baseball against – um, people who make the game just really technical sounding, like they use all these words. I've coined it as diamond babble. Um, but anyway, Alan's always made his information very, very accessible to other people. I mean, you leave one of his physics talks and it's you're like, Oh, I learned something today. Like I understood everything he said cause you simplify it. And I remember one of the things you talked about in your, in one of your talks was that exit speed in general is supplied at about one mile per hour for every five miles per hour of pitch speed. Is that right? Did I get that number correct? So if you're throwing a hundred, you'll add about 20 miles per hour to a hitter's uh, exit speed versus a stationary ball. No, no. Okay. I got that wrong. <laughs> you, you, you didn't get it right. So how much is the, okay. So okay. let me, ref- that's good. So every, no, I, I'm not going yeah. with you. So every, so every mile per hour of pitch speed is worth about two roughly two-tenths of a mile per hour in exit velocity, okay? Or about maybe one foot on a long fly ball. Okay. So if you're throwing so 100, ex- how much does that contribute? Say that again? It, so, if it, you're, so if a pitcher's throwing 100, how much would that contribute to exit speed? Because I think this – Oh, uh, uh, significantly, maybe 20 miles an hour. That's, okay. that's significant. But, you know, it's two-tenths of a mile per hour – Two tenths of a mile per hour exit speed for every mile per hour of that the pitcher throws. Speed. Yeah, so okay. 100 miles per hour it's times 0.2 is 20 miles per hour. So it's it's significant, but the difference between you know 190, you know 98 is not very much. Yeah. So th- and th- does that I guess that kind of debunks the idea that like oh he's supplying the power just get the bat out there because if you're throwing 80, 
you know, with being two tenths of a mile per hour contribution, a guy throwing five miles per hour harder. So, you know, high school kid throwing eighties, that's pretty decent. Then the kid throwing 85 or even 90, that 10 mile per hour difference is only gets to apply another two miles per hour in exit velocity. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's not really, know, and, that's not really true. Yeah. That yeah, it's hard not throwers really are supplying and, and, the and, bat speed. And, and, and the way I like to, the way I like to have people think about it is uh, I, I say, look, uh, so what really matters most, the, where does the other 80% of your exit velocity come from? It comes from the swing speed. It comes from the speed that you're putting into the bat. So the bat speed, that is much, much more than pitch speed in terms of, of, of how far that ball goes or, or what the exit velocity is. And the way I, I like to remind people of that, if they, if they, if they uh, forget about it, is think about hitting the ball off a tee where there is no pitch speed. You know you could hit the ball a long way off a tee. And now look at the opposite extreme where, you, where you're pitching, but there's no bat speed. You're bunting the ball. And the ball's not going to go very far, right? Yeah. So, so bat speed is very, very asymmetric. Bat speed net is much, much more. So, so just, this, put it, just putting the bat out there doesn't do it. Yeah. So is it safe to say that if Carlo, John Carlos Stan hits the ball 120, that he's basically capable of swinging the bat 100, and that's about it? I mean, is that – am I doing the math right? Uh, well, I guess it would be a little more than 100. But say a pitcher's throwing 90 and he hits the ball 120 – where does that put his bat speed at? Uh, okay. I don't so put you on the spot to do mental math here, but. All right. Well, I get my little calculator here. So, uh, okay. Alan's so got his one, Casio. All right. We'll, right. Uh, <laughs> it, it, no, no. It's a Hewlett Packard. It's reverse Polish notation. And, uh, this one here. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, so, uh, 100 times 0.2 is 20, uh, 1.2. He's swinging the bat at about over 80 miles an hour, 80, close to 85 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. I mean, that's well above average. And that's what he's hitting. Obviously, because he's, he's, the exit velocity is well above average. He consistently, he's amazing uh, in in that he really is consistently, seems to be over 100 miles per hour. Yeah. So, man, that's, so how do you explain, I mean, I guess there's always outliers, no matter like, you know, Bob Feller was throwing a hundred miles per hour back way back in the day. Like my dad did that research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a lot of evidence, you know, him going to the, uh, the proving ground to throw through the ballistic, you know, the right. ballistic gates and all that stuff. So he was just an extreme outlier back in the day. One of the hardest throwers ever was, you know, him back in the 50s, 60s. Yeah. And so then Mantle, I guess, is still in that same era where even though, like Bobby said, the baseball was probably softer back then, although I guess we don't really know that. Do you, do you know that, Alan? Not, not so much then, I don't think. I, I mean, that's pretty hard to track. I know that certainly pre-1920 baseballs were pretty soft. Mm-hmm. And then, the, then that was the dead ball era. Uh, and then during World War II, because of materials and things, Baseballs were softer, okay. But you know, after World War II, I think uh, I think they they became closer to what they are now. Now I don't know. I, I no, we don't really have any data. It's very very hard to go to go back in time and try to figure out how lively the baseball was mm-hmm. then versus how lively it is it is now. There are some there are some data. Uh, 
but from the early 50s, none that I know of. It was certainly an interesting question to ask. So I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying the ball was deader than it is now, but it, but we, I, I just saying we don't know one way or the other. Yeah, it just seems crazy that someone from that era could hit a ball that far, that far. I don't know. I guess we, again, like I said, Especially I mean, a sponge ball. <laughs> Bobby's, Bobby's going well, there's full, a, full so Dan, sponge Dan, ball. Dan, you and I, you and I were at Fenway Park together, and we, mm-hmm. we saw. You, remember the red seat? Yeah, ball, the red seat in the bleachers. Very far and, away. Yeah. That's the, so that's the the seat that's in in the right field stands in Fenway, which is painted red, where Ted Williams hit uh, his one of his longest home runs. So I think it's the longest home run, at least to that part of the ballpark in Fenway, um, and that's five hundred feet from home, uh, around five hundred feet from home plate. But again, I think there was a wind in that. I don't remember. Yeah, I I did some research on that a few years ago, and I I don't remember what it was. It wasn't a very strong wind, but it was a, a bit of a win. And that's all. If you stand at that seat and just look in towards our way, you can't believe how far that is. Yeah. And he, yeah. he was a, a pretty lanky dude. I mean, Ted Williams was not some brawny Aaron Judge, John Carlos Stanton, you he know. He was taller, though, wasn't he? Like Alonzo kind of guy. Six, no, he's, I think he was six. He was four. a Cody Bellinger, the Cody if, Bellinger of his era. If you look uh, uh, at these pictures back here, you'll see Ted Williams. Uh that that's that the bottom picture is Ted Williams' last swing as a major leaguer in which he hit a home run. Anyway. It was funny. I was I was listening to Jim Bouton's book again, uh, Ball Four, and towards the end, as he's summing up what happened at the end of the season, like some of the accolades, he goes, "And Teddy Ball Game won Manager of the Year in the MFL." <laughs> do, you, do you remember <laughs> what he meant by that? And the uh, in the well, major, in the major fucking leagues, because oh, that's what, okay, that's, what, that's what I was going to guess, but I wasn't going to say it. All right, yeah, uh, I shouldn't have yeah. said it either, but uh, it struck me as pretty <laughs> funny. I guess he's a was a pretty crass speaker back then. He oh, he was well regarded, but well known well, as te- yeah. yes, you could find online videos about the MFL. Things. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, let's see. I lost track of what we what we. Oh, yeah, he was a lanky guy, but but he understood way back before anyone really knew anything about the biomechanics of swinging, he understood how to swing a bat to, you know, the basic idea of swinging a bat is you've got a certain amount of energy uh, in your body that you're trying to transfer to the bat. And he was as efficient as anybody at how to do that. Hey, look at somebody like who has, you know, during, during more recent years, Look at Ken Griffey Jr. Oh, he's and the best. His, and that is, it, he has one of the most beautiful swings, or had one of the most beautiful swings. And he was not a particularly big, brawny guy. Uh, it, but it was such a fluid swing. And Williams spent his entire conscious hours working on his swing. I mean, you know, so he, he was probably much more efficient than most people at, at, uh, at getting at getting swing speed, basically, yeah, at, at transferring energy to the bat. So you mentioned wind. I remember, God, I was pitching one night in Sugarland, Texas. Gave up what I was absolutely, without a doubt, sure was a bomb. Just released it. You look at it, you're like, I don't even want to look back. Like, just dude crushed it. Left-handed hitter. And Sugarland was known for once in a while having like a jet stream 
in in right field that would shoot right in towards the home plate over this little you know uh, over the bullpen but then there was a little berm where fans would sit and this ball was hit super i mean it was just crushed and i look back and i see it and it's just jettisoning it up into the navy blue sky and then suddenly it just sort of like it's at its apex looks like it's over the fence at its apex and then my outfielder i'm like no shot he's under that ball like that ball's leaving the park and it just like crashes straight down and i don't know what kind of wind it was but guys were saying like you could see the flags just like moving but it must have been i mean 25 30 miles per hour but you don't think of wind being able to stop a ball that well or help a ball go that far, but it really, it really, really can. Like that night, it was, it was with a, without a doubt, long home run that turned into a flyout that didn't even make it to the warning track. It landed five feet into the grass in front of the warning track. And it was astonishing. It's like a moment that I never forget because I was, like I said, positive it was a bomb. So, yeah. no, when, yeah. I, just as, you know, I, I one time estimated that something like a five mile an hour wind will uh will affect things uh you know some somewhere between 15 and 20 feet on a on sort that's of a lot typical fly ball and that, yeah that's a lot of distance and that's not a lot of wind five miles per hour mm-hmm. uh so wind can play a big role and it actually complicates the process if you're trying to you know learn about baseball trajectories by looking at things like statcast data that's one the one missing ingredient that we really don't know how to handle very well is how to take we know how to take wind into account. What we don't know is how fast is it blowing and mm-hmm. what direction it's blowing. And you know, it depends on four dimensions, right? X, Y, Z and time. It, it changes in time. And so uh, uh, it's very, very hard to take wind into account properly when doing that kind of analysis. Uh, as a hitter, I can tell you that wind in your face feels like an absolute wall that you cannot get through. I mean, it's when, when you walk out to the, for batting practice and the wind is blowing straight in, you, you think like, how am I going to get a hit today? Cause you, what do you do? If you hit anything above somebody's head, yeah. like trajectory wise, it's an out. There's no way it's, it's dropping. It just hangs up there for what feels like an hour and the guys run under it and they try and beat one in the ground and the infielder. It's really just, it feels like a no hitter waiting to happen. It's a terrible feeling as a hitter. Conversely, if the wind is at your back, you feel like Superman and every ball and batting practices, let it fly. But I can tell you it's, it's brutal. Like wind in your face is just a demoralizing feeling as a, yeah. is, is it this, is it the same as the pitcher, Dan? I can feel, I feel like if the wind's at your back and you're pitching, you feel like you're throwing harder. You, you definitely, well, yeah, you definitely feel that too, because you know, when the wind's shooting out to center field, and you see what you know is a routine fly ball, put your outfielder back against the fence, you're like, oh, God. Like, I got to be really careful because that one almost left. That's that's when you know you're in trouble. When what you know is a routine fly ball gets really deep, then you get pretty nervous. And you almost have to start changing the way you pitch a little bit because you just, you're just afraid of a ball that's up in the zone. Just, oh, I'll just get a little bit of it and it becomes a double or a deep fly ball comes a home run. So, yeah. Alan, does the, ball, the modern ballparks – because you know, we were looking at Griffith Stadium, uh, which has since been demolished. Pretty open, right, compared to, to today's designs. Does the, the 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 height and the enclosure of today's ballparks is that? I imagine that limits wind a good amount. Well, it limits things, but it can create also kind of crazy things that go on. So, for example, if you've got uh, you know upper decks in the outfield, but you've got 
open concourses, you know, you could have these sort of jet effects where the wind, mm. uh, you know, like you're walking down the streets of Chicago and then you're, uh, you're, oh, you're shielded that, yeah, by yeah. buildings and then you, and then, uh, you know, you come to, to this cross street and the wind is just howling. So the wind gets funneled into these, into these open spots. Uh, and so you can create all kinds of funny currents. Uh, I think at a stadium like Griffith Stadium used to be, it's much easier to predict what the wind is doing there because it is so open. Yeah. And it, it's just much harder when you've got all these obstructions and little passages through the obstructions that creates all kinds of funny effects. Well, I remember the first time being on Comiskey Park, like I was in high school, and, we're, and it, big league fields are normally sunken down. So it's you're on the field, and we're playing catch, and it's like almost five line the foul line the foul ball the foul pole with very I mean we were kind of high school like there's no reason that all these high school guys should have that kind of arm strength and it felt effortless like you could like the ball just carried and carried when you were throwing like there was no resistance and then when you got into the game anything that got up above you know pop fly like that ball was either caught by the wind or pushed back by the wind like the wind feel like it wasn't a factor until a certain until you got to a certain altitude, essentially. Yeah. Al, yeah. yeah. Alan, we got a question on YouTube. Um, oh, okay. hot, hot or cold? I, and I guess I could ask this from two ways. Uh, does the ball travel, given the same ballpark, you know, like just say it's Baltimore, given the same ballpark, if it's hotter out, does the ball travel farther than if it's, does it carry farther than if it's cold out? And if you're using a metal bat, does a cold bat versus a, you know, summer warmed up bat, travel farther or, or shorter? Okay, first question's easy. Uh, w- warm air is less dense than cold air, so the ball definitely travels further in, in warmer air. And it, uh, you know, I remember a couple of years ago when uh, the, during the World Series uh, in Los Angeles, the temperature was in the 90s, and people were wondering, you know, how that, how's that going to affect the game? And, yeah, I think I, I think I estimated that, that on a typical, you know, 100 mile per hour, 30 degree launch angle fly ball that would go maybe close to 400 feet, every 10 degrees is worth about three and a, three and a third is my estimate feet. Hmm. So 10 degrees hotter is going to go three, a little over three feet further, 10 degrees colder, three feet less. Now about the, the aluminum bats in cold weather. Hmm. I don't know. This is something that I remember somebody investigated uh, some years ago, but quite frankly, I don't remember what the result was. It's, you, I'm not sure there's much of an effect, but I think the idea was that in cold weather, somehow the wall of the bat gets maybe stiffer and so there's less of a trampoline effect so that you can't mm-hmm. hit the ball as hard. But I don't know if that was ever really proved or not. And uh, it's hard for me to believe it would be a big effect. I don't know. Anecdotally, Bobby, you've, you've, you've used these things. What do you think? Uh, it feels like everything is better in warmer weather. <laughs> I mean, like, when, you pick up that, when you pick up that aluminum bat or like when you leave the bat in your car, and you go and grab it for the game and it's ice cold. It's just like, ah, like the the mentally it's like, if I don't hit it on the barrel, this thing is going to ruin my life. Right. So I think that, uh, I'll, I'll just go on the side of warm weather is better. Baseball is meant to be played in warmer weather. 
It is a kind of miserable game when it's cold. It's so yeah. bad. Uh-huh. With a metal bat and you get one like off the end, you might just just sit me on the bench the rest of the game. Like I want <laughs> nothing to do with throwing anything. Or if the worst, let me let me let me give you the worst one is when you foul it off off the end of the bat. So you have to continue the at bat and somehow get your hands to get feeling back. So I'm going to say warm weather. Whoever asked the question, the answer is. Well, we, we can all agree it's much more fun playing in warm weather. It is much more fun being the spectator in warm weather. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, it, just like everything. Well, it depends on how. I've been to games in St. Louis where the temperature was 95 and the humidity was, you know, 90%. And that's kind of miserable, too. Yeah. Do you go to day games personally, Alan? Yeah. Oh, I haven't really? been to any games. This, uh, well, today, well, so day games are just so hot. They're just like sun's beating you in the face. I just feel like well, day games so, are rough. Uh, I mean, I, I've been, I've been, no, no, there aren't that many day games. So I guess I haven't been to that many, but uh, I know a year ago when the Red Sox were in Chicago to play the White Sox, it was a Sunday afternoon game. I went up for the game for that one. Uh, but Mostly when I go, it's at night because most games are at night. Yeah, but I, 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 I kind of well. I mean, I like I like afternoon games. Uh, it, I, but you know, I, I guess I per, actually prefer evening games. Uh, I, it they, depends. It really depends on the like what this is. It just a normal like Thursday night game. Are you going on like a Saturday afternoon where it's a whole day, like you're going to make a whole thing of it? Are you going to Wrigley? Are you going to Fenway? Are you just going to your local minor league game? I think it matters where, you know, and the, and the humidity probably matters. (laughs) That's true. Day games at Wrigley or at Fenway, especially if it's like reasonably reasonable temperature, pretty cool because everyone's out. It's just like so many people doing their thing. There's other ballparks where you have to drive there, like, Philly's a little well. Philly's not that far off the beaten path. I don't know. I guess most ballparks aren't that far off the beaten path, but Fenway and Wrigley always seem special. Where just like in the city, like in the city, you know, you can get get there. So you can do if you can make a whole like Fenway is surrounded by all the Red Sox bars. Same thing with Wrigley is surrounded by all the 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 strip of Cubs bars and the rooftops. I mean, it's like a whole. It's like being at an outdoor fest essentially when you go to one of those games. Yeah, and Nationals Park, which I'm just getting acquainted with, which is really nice, by the way. And they also have that, like, left field is pretty open, where I'm sure that makes some weird jet streams coming in. Also a pretty cool neighborhood spot. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the park is is obviously relatively new, and when it was first built, there really wasn't a whole lot around there. And the last time I was there, it's very, very nice to see lots of stuff built up around there now. Uh, and, it, you know, it really has become a very, very pleasant place to go. Yeah. People have told me a lot about D.C. that um, in the Shaw neighborhood, which is where uh, Griffith, Griffith Stadium is, even just five years ago, maybe more like 10, it was like a don't like don't spend time there kind of place, like dangerous. And the same thing like Navy Yard, which is where the Nationals Ballpark right. is, there was like just nothing. It was just warehouses, industrial. It was just right. very industrial. Now there's tons of beautiful new apartment buildings like very heavy with construction and just like a really cool hip place to place to live so that like you said that's all cradled around the ballpark where it is yeah. like people just leave their hey you want to walk over to the ballpark oh yeah it's two blocks and just like tons of people my age like early 30s and stuff like that so yeah it's, it's pretty cool I've, I've never witnessed it the other way but 
it's definitely pretty vibrant down there now. Um, Alan, I want to get back to, here's a, here's a question for you. Just, just opinion. So we've talked about, you know, raising seam height and lowering seam height and raising bath standards and lowering bath standards to get to like this place of normalcy. What, what do you feel like is normal for baseball as far as like home run rates? I know that's a very speculative, just vague question, but you know, college baseball, like, is it a thing where you just know it when you see it, like in college baseball, like, Hey, this sucks. We have no home runs now. This need, we need to boost them back up. Like, where is the, well, I, let me, let me talk about college baseball first. Uh, so, uh, again, just, this is what people have told me. This is not my own opinion or anything. Uh, prior to the BB core bats, people thought that the game had sort of gotten out of control. The offense was dominating the game. You know, the traditional battle between pitcher and batter was leaning much heavily towards much more heavily towards the batter. Games were taking too long to play because the scores were so high. Then when they instituted the BB core bats, it, that was a big correction, but a lot of people felt it was an overcorrection that now they're learning. You have to learn how to play the game all over again because you're not relying on the long ball anymore. Yeah. The Bobby Stevens of the, of the world can't hit home run anymore. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And then, sorry, Bobby. Uh, And then, uh, uh, but then once they changed the ball, lowering the seams on the ball from what I have what, from what people have told me, they're, it, people are now pretty happy with the way the game is being played. They've, they've yeah. seemed to have struck the right balance. Now, Major League Baseball. Uh, I, there is a lot of dissatisfaction out there uh, with uh, the – not counting this year because there's not enough data this year, and there won't be because it's only going to be 60 games, but – but in the last few years, home runs are way up. Strikeouts are way up. Balls in play are down because of the other two things being up. Um, now, I think different people have different opinions about it, but since you asked me, I'll give you my opinion about it. I like to see balls in play. I, what, to me, what I, I love to see in baseball is great fielding plays. When I see a great fielding play, whether it's the other guy's team or my team, man, I'm, I, I, I just, I'm amazed when I see it, some of the things people do. And when you take that away by having a, large, a larger and larger fraction of plate appearances resulting either in home runs, which is not in play, and walks and, and strikeouts, then, you know, you're losing that. You're losing what I think is, uh, I believe, is one of the most fun parts of the game. But again, that's just my opinion. Yeah, no, I like that opinion. Bobby, what, how do you feel about that? I would prefer the ball be put in play much, much more than it is in just all, all levels of baseball. It's, it's swing for the fence, you know, whether you got one strike, no strikes, two strikes, doesn't matter. I would prefer to see the ball put in play. I do like seeing web gems. Like I, I actually like seeing the game develop on the field, whether it's, uh, you know, strategically with the coach putting signs on or whether the ball's put in play and actually watching players move. Like, I would prefer to see more baseball, like more intellectual baseball played as opposed to just guys standing at their positions, watching home run, standing, strikeout, walk, 
strikeout, home run, strikeout, back in the dugout. Yeah. Like there really is no concept. It's hard to tell a kid to watch a game. Like, hey, learn from your position. You play shortstop, watch watch Tim Anderson, watch Javi Baez. Well, 90% of the time, like they're literally standing there doing nothing because nothing's <laughs> happening. So it's the I, infielders, I the infielders are picking dandelions the way young kids pick dandelions in the outfield. <laughs> and it's boring. I mean, it's personally boring as a player. Like when the guy, when guys walk, I, I equate it to when you're standing in the infield and guys just keep walk, you can't throw a strike, just walk, walk, walk. And then probably like, you know, fall off the wall. It's just not fun. Like there's no, there's no energy to the game. It's just a slow, lethargic game. So yeah, yeah. I think I, I think we I'm agree. Same, yeah, I, I agree with Alan. It's the ball needs to be put in play. Like that whole Shigon movement, I guess. So when we had Jeff Fry on, that's kind of what he's alluding to: is let's put the hit and run on. Let's get some, you know, bunts, manufacture runs. Let's get this I know, party. Yeah, yeah. Let's get this party started. I know the ball is more conducive, it feels like, to home runs. It just seems like that way now that they transition to the ball to AAA and the uptick in home runs. But I'd like to see the, I'd like to see batters at least try to hit the ball and play with two strikes as opposed to just waving at home run or nothing. Like, yeah. give me something. Well, anecdotally, so I took my, um, my slow-motion video camera that has a really long zoom lens. I took it out to – a Nationals game, a couple of minor league games, a couple of Atlantic League games, and uh, some softball and college games. And especially last fall when I went to the Nationals and then I went to two Atlantic League games, I was trying to get infield. I was trying to get photos of infielders in slow motion making plays across the diamond to show like infield mechanics for my YouTube channel. And it looked, it literally took so long to get an infield play at the Major League game. Where And then I go to the Atlantic League and uh, a minor league game, and there are just, like, so many more ground ball chances. I mean, it was, as a photographer, trying to get, you know, trying to get an infielder doing something, I was literally waiting, like, three innings between ground balls, it felt like, sometimes. And there was, there was just a stark difference at that point where I was like, I probably got four times more chances at getting an infield ground ball. Because it was tough. I had to, like, you know, shoot over to – because you never know where the ball is going to be hit, obviously. So I'm trying to opportunistically – catch a shortstop in action and it was just like it just was so long between i had chances so you could just tell from that was just my little anecdote about it really it really is a difference between you know major leagues and atlantic league which is independent pro baseball but i assume the difference is probably still there in the minor leagues maybe a little bit less so maybe it's like in between because those guys are a little fresher into what is going to get them into the big leagues, I guess. Whereas the Atlantic league guys have been around for 10, 15 years right. in pro ball. So they've maybe been playing a different style and they're sticking with it. I don't know. So Dan, a question for you, uh, the Atlantic league was the league where they were doing these experimental things yeah. last year. Did you yeah. see any of that? Uh, my last year there. So we went to the red and blue seam balls, which was, they were cool looking. They weren't really an experiment. My last year they did the pitch clock which I had no issue with because I was always trying to move fast on the mound anyway. And uh, some hitters definitely had an issue with it because they had to get in the darn box rather than just stepping out and doing nothing for 30 seconds. So I found that to be fine. I don't think it changed anything. Um, I don't think we were limited on mound visits that year. That was 2016. But after that, it got out of control where they started. They, A, they wanted to put the mound back farther, which is outrageous. 
they wanted to put a runner on second with two outs, which of course that's not happening in the major leagues. Uh, they wanted to let runners steal if a ball hit the dirt at any point in the at bat. And then they, I think they also want to limit pitchers ability to uh, pick off to first base. So you couldn't do the traditional, like your foot goes forward in front of the rubber. You have to step back off the rubber, like a little leaker. I actually had um, a reporter interview me just yesterday about moving the mound back. Wanted okay, to know what the effect let's would be. get into it. What did you, and what did you tell him? Um, or just what's your stance in general? Well, it seems it seems kind of weird to me to do that. Uh, and as a pitcher, I, you, I'm sure you have you you have stronger opinions about it than I do even. Uh, but it certainly would be a major adjustment, it seems to me, for pitchers to, to to have to adjust to that. I mean, you're going to have to change your release point and things like that. Um, well, so, you know, I was trying to look at the practical aspects of it, you know. So, for sure, the – what in, in StatCast, they, they talk about the effective speed of the ball, it basically having to do with the amount of time from release to home plate. And so you, you move the mound back – a foot and a half, that's uh, roughly 3%, you know, so it's roughly three miles an hour. Yeah. The, uh, the effective velocity goes down by, you know, two and a half to three miles an hour on, on a, like a 95-mile-per-hour fastball. That's, I believe, is significant. That I think, it, I think major league hitters would love that. Mm-hmm. You know, that gives them much more, you know, not much more, but, you know, more time to react to the pitch. So it for sure is going to, favor the uh, the batter it, it, uh, one one thing that does happen is there's more movement on a pitch just because the the, the pitch is That's more time. traveling over a bigger yeah. Yeah, over a bigger yeah. distance so it, it moves more but the batter has more time to react to it and I think the it's definitely in the batter's favor it just strikes me as being a strange a strange thing to do I, I the one thing I that I didn't know I don't know much about is maybe I just haven't thought about it enough is what, what about changing the height of the mound either higher or lower and what, what effect that would have on pitching. And uh, that's something you would know better than I would, I think. I mean, well, I know that, I know that after the 1968 season, the year of the pitcher in 1968, they lowered the mound from what it was, I don't even remember what it was, but they lowered it to 10 inches. Mm-hmm. And presumably to give the batters uh, more of a chance. It was 15, which was, was which, 15? Is, okay. which is really high. Um, and I know I, can't, I couldn't find this when I Googled it, and maybe I'd have to search it again, but there was an experiment that in the Florida State League one year, they raised the mound without telling anybody to study the effect on pitchers, and there was like a significant increase in injuries. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, That's right, I can't find that. For everyone out there in the world who hears me say that, take it with a grain of salt. I am very certain that is a thing that happened. I read this somewhere. It was a reputable source. I cannot. It was some years ago. So I don't it's 100% go do, do digging. Do digging if you want to corroborate this story. That's all I'm saying. But I'm very certain that, I, that that did happen. So that's an interesting side effect that if we did – bump this back up what happens to injury rates because we just essentially don't know and that's a big deal obviously for how commoditized 
professional athletes are. I mean, that's expensive. If they say, hey, this is going to boost our injury rates 10%, that costs us X amount of dollars. Do we really want to do this? Um, yeah. the, the thing with moving the mountain back, I think jumping back two feet or more is a pretty excessive one-time jump to, to get used to all of a sudden. But I think moving it back a foot or something like that, I personally also kind of don't like the game at the moment. I think pitchers need to be incentivized to pitch again rather than just get up there and chuck it as hard as they can. And, of course, that doesn't lump everybody in, so I appreciate the pitchers out there who are actually out there pitching, essentially. But, you know, there's a huge portion of the bullpen now that's just like a revolving door that you just throw 97, 98, go in there, just huck the ball, throw some sliders, you know, pitch for one to two years, then get injured and go home forever. And I think that brand of baseball kind of sucks, personally. So I, I think moving the mound back – incentivizes pitchers to say, oh, guess what? I can't overpower everyone on every pitch. I'm not even going to bother to try. I need to start to try to actually locate and think myself through these situations a little bit more. So I, I think that would be a good result for, for the game in the long term. Bobby, where do you fall on this issue? I just look at it from like a logistic – like if you move back the mound to 62 feet, the, the cost to replace every single mound – across the country to, you know, basically cut it off, put it back a foot and a half and then rebuild it. I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have just people that are dropping the program. Like we can't, we can't afford to rebuild, rebuild them out. That seems I'm just, excessive. I'm just thinking logistically, like, like logistically in the Atlantic league, yeah. how does that make sense? Like all the bullpens, all of them, all the in-game mounds, you're just going to, and they plan on moving it at the all-star break. So three days, like in three days, you're going to cut the bullpen out, back it up two feet, rebuild that to, to the correct slope and the right height. No way. There's no way it was going to happen. There's probably only like a handful of guys that do that in the greater region of your of the country that are like rebuilding baseball fields. This guy's going to have to do it forever. That guy's business is booming. If it happens, I'm rebuilding mounds for a living. <laughs> well, I would counter in that. There just needs to be one chief and a bunch of Indians. I mean – you just get you paid, paid your 12 interns as a minor league team, pay 12 interns 12 bucks an hour to come help us dig up this mound and move it one day. And just your head groundskeeper just supervises and makes sure it's the slopes, right? It's not that but big you, of a but deal. But you know how, but you, I built I mean, a mound indoors. It sucks. It's a lot of work. I'm saying you're a pitcher. Like, you know how particular, like if the yeah. mound is shitty, you're all over the ground screw guy. Like that ground screw guy is never going to hear the end of it. <laughs> That's not true. I'm not kind of, I'm not that kind of person. No, I don't. No. I'm well, not maybe not you. Groundskeeper. Maybe not you. But there are guys. Like there are guys. Look, why well, you, you certainly, you, certainly, you watch games and you see pitches come in uh, from the bullpen, and the first thing they're doing is kind of rearranging the dirt. You know, yeah. near their landing point to somehow uh-huh. suit them. So yeah, there's definitely a break-in period. There are definitely differences between practice mound and game mound. And in college, this is the one of the weirdest things about college baseball is that it's just completely unregulated. It's like the Wild West. I remember pitching at the University of Delaware when I was in college, and it's like, oh, great. We're, going, we're playing at Delaware. It's like an 18-inch mound. It was so high. It was unbelievable. And the, and the practice mounds and the bullpen were crazy. So you just know. You're like, this is insane. And then even in pro ball, no one's going out there measuring – like, there's no regulations. I remember at Sioux Falls, the mound couldn't have been more than seven inches tall. It was just very noticeably flat, where you just pitch differently, but you have to get used to it. But it felt like pitching on flat ground. So there's there's still always a difference. 
Um, obviously, in the major leagues, there's not. They're going to regulate it. But in college, it's like the Wild West sometimes. It's insane. So, I don't know. Yeah, you definitely you definitely stand in the box and feel like some pitchers are, like, looking up at them. Like, why is this guy so so tall? And the mound just looks like a – it's like they just – the coaches were like, oh, it's the mound, like, bigger. Let's just well, make it big. it's like what That's you said. The, the umpire can't come down and be like, hey, coach, we got we to gotta shave two inches off this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> like, you, you know, there's nothing to do about it, you know. So once you build it up, it's like, it's like stuck there. It's like building a well, fence on your neighbor's property. It's, it's like, funny. oh, you want me to take on this whole fence? <laughs> it's funny because baseball is that sport, right? Like, who's going to come regulate the mound in baseball? But flip it to football. Like, if Alabama had their field goal posts lowered two feet, like, you, they would – NCAA and SEC, they'd be all over that in a heartbeat. Whereas if Alabama's pitching mound was 14 inches high. It's an interesting you, idea. Nobody, yeah, right. <laughs> they, they, should, they could just go there overnight and just, like, dig the hole a little deeper. So they don't actually change. You know, they just, like, sink it into the ground a little more. Or, it's or they put a mechanism in. They put, a, like, a spring so mechanism in there in the, in the hole. So every <laughs> year they just crank it down two inches. And you just never know. It's like no, it's the, always way you, lower. the way you boil a frog. You know, you put a frog in a, right. in a, in a cool, pot of cool water. You slowly turn up the heat. No, it's lower on the, with the side they're kicking on. Like, their kicker knows that when he's kicking, that field goal pulls him about four feet off the ground. He can basically kick a line drive. <laughs> so, Alan, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, pitch spin a little bit. So, one thing I – so, I, I was actually reading – you know this guy, Barton Smith, right, on Twitter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, he, was, he tweeted something out a while ago, and he was asking around. He's like, does anyone know what a cutter – what the spin of a cutter is because even he and he seems uh, correct me if I'm wrong is he like another physicist or he, he seems incredibly smart and in the know <laughs> about spin but I don't know really his, his full background he's an, he's an aeronautical engineer okay but he was saying that he really didn't know what a cutter actually did and I feel like I do but I also am I'm like eh, I'm not really sure but my understanding is that a cutter is just a fastball so like a four seam fastball spinning backwards tilted slightly so it's spinning at us at a sideways sideways angle as it flies straight that was my understanding of what i was supposed to do with it as a pitcher um that you're not really imparting a side spin to it that you're not imparting any bullet spin like like a slider it's not just a faster slider it's a but can you talk about what a cutter what a cutter does yeah i i I think maybe this is more conventional wisdom than anything else but i i sort of think it's like a fast slider that's really the way I think about it. It does pretty much what a slider does. At least, I mean, so if I look at StatCast data and at pitches that are classified as cutters versus classified as sliders, uh, except for the speed, they're doing very, very similar things. So among, so they have, uh, pr- there's probably a little bit more backspin on a cutter than there is on a slider. But there, there, I see the side spin. I see the the bullet spin, the gyro spin on it. So the the, the thing that people nowadays call the spin efficiency for a cutter and a slider, they're fairly similar as far as I can tell. Um, so I, I think it's a sort of a fine line between cutter and slider. And I'm, uh, you know, I uh, you. You would know better. I mean, so I mean, so you get the so with with a, with both a slider and a cutter, you have you have uh, uh, glove side movement, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to a four seamer or two seamer, where you have arm side movement. 
So definitely the movement, the horizontal movement is in the opposite direction for the cutter in the same direction that you have for a slider. So I have a hard time distinguishing them. And, um, but on the other hand, I never tried to, you know, I'm, I'm not yeah. a pitcher. So, you know, I'm, all I'm doing is just looking at data and, and looking, at the, looking at the characteristics of the pitch that have been classified as cutters versus sliders. And they, they seem, to me, they seem very, very similar. I'll come back to, to my perspective on throwing it. But Bobby, what do you see as a hitter when you see a cutter? Do you see a dot like a slider or does it look like a four-seamer? What does it look like? You don't see, you don't see it. It looks different than a, than a slider. It definitely looks different. It looks more like it's, like it's running away from you as opposed to sharp breaking away from you. If, if I could describe that like a mental image of somebody, like the slider, uh, the slider on the hand, I mean, back to like the definition of cutter slider. I feel like pitches are all like, it's a so gray area. Like you got curveball, slur, slider. Like I feel like Alan hit on the head, like a, a cutter is pretty much a, a hard slider or a harder slider with probably less tilt on it. Um, but when I'm hitting and I see it, especially if you know the guy throws a cutter, I treat it as a slider. I'm going to treat it as he throws a hard slider. Whereas you don't see many guys, at least I don't remember seeing many guys that threw a cutter and a slider in the same, in their repertoire of pitches. So I'm going to treat it as a hard slider and it's going to have a, it's going to have more of a slider look than a, than a curve, his curveball does. But if, if I'm putting them side by side, the, the slider definitely has more feels, looks like it has more spin. The cutter looks like it kind of just, is tumbling away from you. If I, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of describe unless there's, unless you see them side by side, but I definitely think it's, uh, I treat it as a hitter, as a hard slider. Yeah. I have the impression that the amount of horizontal movement is, is more on a slider than a cutter. Yes. So yeah, that sure. on, a, on a cutter, it looks because the, because there's less movement, it looks like late movement. Uh, to, to the batter because it's, it's so little that it seems to happen right at the last minute. Um, whereas uh, oftentimes with a slider, if you can pick it up out of their hand, it looks like a big sweeping horizontal movement and it, and it might be easier to pick up on. Uh, well, that's, less, so, less so with the cutter. Well, that's the, the, in the uptick in velocity, those big sweeping sliders are now very darty, hard sliders out of those pitchers hands. But back to the point I made a, a, you know, a second ago is I, don't, I can't recall a pitcher having, you know, you know what a guy throws, especially in pro ball, like you've got some kind of a, somewhat of a scouting report. I don't remember a guy having a slider and also a cutter. Like I don't, I don't Dan, do you play with well, guys that a, had a, both? Yeah, a lot of times they'll, I mean, because you could just essentially just make it bigger or smaller. But – so is that a cutter though, or like, right? Like the, the pitch definition is skewed. Yeah. And this is why I want to bring this up because it is as a person who teaches other people, you don't want to teach people the wrong thing. And you also want to know like if what I'm experiencing is what I'm experiencing is actually what's happening. And of course you can explain things one way. So like, I remember someone, I was on a Twitter argument a number of years ago about, 
oh, you shouldn't tell kids to like pull down the curveball because that's not what actually happens. It's like, look, dude, I'm not going to tell a kid, hey, make sure as you come through, you, you throw it and then you pronate back over. Like that's going to happen on its own. So as long as mentally you think, I got to get my finger to the front of the ball and pull down, even though if my finger is not actually going to be in the front of the ball, which we know is true on a curveball, like even on a curveball, you're never here. You're still on the side of it. You sort of like get back through it to right it to get the spin going forward, but you're never on the front of the ball with the curveball. But thinking that mentally makes good sense because it helps you get to the front of the ball, whatever that means in orienting the spin properly. If you tell a kid to get on the side of the ball, he's going to make it spin like a junky little league slurve piece of garbage. So the things you tell people can be different from reality as long as the output and what you're trying to achieve makes sense. So, um, and I'm sure Alan, you've explained physics that way where you just want them to understand where you don't have to make sure it doesn't have to be exactly though. You know, I'm sure you've made compromises between what's exactly true. Yeah. Yeah. You can, so one simplifies things for sure. Yeah, for sure. So with a cutter, um, I was taught by someone who threw a good cutter, a teammate of mine named Sean, and he he said, "Look, it's essentially gonna. It's hard to learn because it's essentially straight in practice. If you're playing catch with it, it's not gonna break. It's not gonna look like a slider. It's not gonna have almost any break at all. I'm just looking for the spin." And he said, "Basically, it's gonna have like a four seam spin that's kind of angled, and it'll, it might have a little bit of roundness to it, but it really won't break in practice. Only when you throw it really hard in a bullpen." and in a game will it actually start to visibly move. And even then it's hard to see a cutter move lots of times because you lose track of it as you release and your head goes away for a second, you come back up, it moves so little that you really can't pick it up sometimes. So that's, and then the way you release a slider versus a, a cutter, there's a, there's a noticeable, I got on the side of the ball feeling throwing a slider. Like you get to the front of it, but you also get to the side of it. It's kind of a mixture of getting to the front and the side. And you can feel yourself getting around it to sort of spin it. Um, on the cutter, that's completely not the case at all. On the cutter, it's almost like I'm, I'm exactly in the center and now I'm not. It's like very slightly off center at the last minute. And when you feel your fingers slip to the side on a cutter, what happens is it cement mixes and now you threw an 87 mile per hour fastball <laughs> and it sucks. That's what's really hard about throwing a cutter. If you feel your fingers slip to the side, it doesn't break at all or it backs up, which is actually good. That kind of saves you because then it'll move into a hitter and it's like, at least it wasn't straight, but anytime you feel your fingers get off of the edge of it, it doesn't do anything. So you have to be like pressing through it. And it, and to me, it always felt like I'm just trying to tilt the ball at the last little minute. I'm just tilting it. And that's when they're actually good because you stay through it. And, and so that's why it felt, it feels fundamentally different from a slider because you do have a feeling of, I caught and spun the ball as, as a slider, even though it's not nearly as much as a curveball. So again, like I don't know exactly what a cut, what a cutter looks like spin wise. If it's got a little bit of side spin or no side spin or whatever, like Alan, you said, it's, I don't know, but uh, well, there's again, definitely a difference in release. Yeah, no, I, actually that's, that was a very informative explanation you just gave. I, I I've never heard that before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, that's why it's it's useful for people who who look at the the actual data on the movement and things like that. Uh, it's important that they talk with people like you who actually throw the pitch to to try to correlate what you do with your release uh, versus what you actually see in the data. I think more and more yeah. that's go that kind of thing is is going on. But 
Well, and the other thing to consider is that a lot of people throw natural cutters. Like they accidentally throw cutters. Right. And, and like Ken, I think Kenley Jansen's one of them. I know Mariano Rivera, when he first started doing it, I think was one of them. And of course, like once you start saying, oh, I'm throwing a cutter now, let's try to refine it. But there's, I've had lots of kids accidentally throw cutters. And so you say, well, he's not accidentally doing this. He thinks he's throwing a four seamer. It's just slightly cutting. And so that means it's not this thing. It's like, I'm just yeah. putting off center pressure. I'm just tilting the ball a little bit. That's why I feel like it's more of a four seamer angled rather than mixing the side, you know, the forward spin and the gyro spin because there are some guys that throw really good natural cutters and then they just like, Hey, let's throw that all the time because you're throwing a 94 mile per hour cutter. So that's where I feel like going down that rabbit hole is like, okay, because throwing a fastball that accidentally cuts feels nothing like a slider. Like it bears no resemblance to the way you throw those two pitches. So I don't know. Verdict's still out. It's really interesting. I'd like to hear other, I don't know many other guys that throw cutters. That's why it's another thing that's hard as a young pitcher to figure this out is because the amount of guys that throw cutters is very small because a, it's hard to learn. You need someone like my teammate who can, um, Alan, gotcha. Um, you know, you need a teammate who can teach you how to do it properly. If I didn't have my teammate to show me, I was probably sunk because you're just guessing. Um, and so it's really something like you want an astronaut to show you like what the moon's really like, you know what I mean? Not someone who's yeah. just guessing from a textbook kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cutters are cutters are fascinating creatures. So, Alan, as we wrap up here, what are your predictions for the major leagues this year? Will we finish our season? And how will your beloved Red Sox stack up in the standings? Well, we finish will we finish the season? Um, I believe that there is probably a 50-50 chance only that we finish the season. I, I really start to worry with all these postponements, the Cardinals recently and uh, Miami. Yes. I mean, um, I, I'm really concerned. And how the Red Sox do, pff, they haven't shown much so far. Um, one of the things that occurs to me is that if Major League Baseball had a little bit more time to prepare for this, this might have been a good time to experiment with different things. You know, the things that they were planning to do this year with the Atlantic League you know, the independently, um, I mean, they can't, they can't move them out. I think, but they could, they could try out of it. So, you know, so they're doing they're, the, what, a couple of things they are doing, you know, the runner on second base for, for extra endings and things like that. But they, they, this would be a good opportunity just to say, all right, look, we're going to, this season is going to be what it is and we'll play yeah. it out, but let's, let's see if we can learn something from it. I, I would hope that they would approach things that way. But who knows? Yeah. One of my ideas, the thing that we did with our youth teams, we uh, had some indoor games when it was uh, – what was the deal? I can't remember. We, we had a team. We played indoors in our batting cages. So it was kind of like, you know, you hit it in different areas, you get points. But we had these bonus balls. So every team had like three of them. One of them was – so, you know, say Bobby's up with runners on first and second. My team can throw in the – any out is a double play. So it doesn't matter where you hit it. You just get two outs or this ball and this pitch only, uh, or for this, a bat only, if you don't get a hit, the inning's over. But like every team has a couple of these like death balls or when you're hitting, you could throw out the, it's a, it's a double play or it's a home run. Any, any hit becomes a home run. Any out becomes a double play. So you just have these bonuses. You just throw in at random times and just see how they work. Well, that was pretty, I, that was pretty fun. 
I hope Major League Baseball doesn't do that. But, it would ruin the uh, stats. Yeah, but they, they could do. They could come up with other things. It could be the X, the XLB, like yeah, the, right. the the spinoff of, of Major League yeah, Baseball. Yeah, make it a little. Yeah, get a little inter, little entertainment and yeah. Yeah, like you get money you get ball, one, every team gets one. Every team gets one trained greyhound as an outfielder, <laughs> just flagging down balls in the gaps. So. <laughs> Well, Alan, thanks for joining us. It was great to catch up with you. It was good, always good to have you on the show. I told you we could fill out 90 minutes. We could have gone to two hours well, easy. Well done. Well done. And, uh, uh, yeah, this is one of those rare days in East Central Illinois in the summer where the weather is actually quite nice. So we're about, my wife and I are about to go out hiking. So uh, oh, Wow, that's looking, awesome. Looking, looking forward to that. And the other thing I'm looking forward to is uh, coming to D.C. sometime. Uh, uh, you better hit me up. And I absolutely will. So I'll let you know when that's going to happen. I, well, you're, I a big it, his, you're a big history buff. so I am. So I'm a big Supreme Court buff. And, uh, and then, it's a beautiful building. It's a really, who's your I mean, favorite, it's a who's your favorite justice? <laughs> well, RBG. Who else? <laughs> this is my life right now. The typhoon, the oh. typhoon was, uh, or the tropical storm was literally we're in the eye of it when I woke up at 7 this morning. That's so right. My goodness. It'll, it'll be, it'll be dry here in that, an hour. But. I didn't realize it got that far north already. Yep, it's on its way up to, uh, I mean, it's engulfing Canada at the moment. But, but yeah. Well, if you're out there, thanks so much for being here. Alan, thanks again. We always appreciate you. Uh, where can people follow you on the web? Uh, uh, well, my website is uh, uh, baseball.physics.illinois.edu, and my Twitter handle is at P-O-B guy, P-O-B-G-U-I. So yep, physics of baseball guy. Physics of baseball guy, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, if you're out there, definitely follow Alan. He has tons of great insight. Always politely uh, correcting, not correcting, you're not out there correcting people, but you're always out there politely engaging with people I, on physics I, matters and you're a good resource to follow. You have a lot of interesting stuff. You, you do a good on, job. Emphasis, thank you very much. I Emphasis on polite. I try not to yeah, blame for anyone sure. on. Yeah. Good meeting you, Bobby. Engaging. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It was, it was good. I have, I have a lot of more questions. I'll have to have you back on. We'll, we'll do it I've again. Got, I've got minor league ball questions. I've got stuff to, to so I can argue with Dan about later. I've got plenty of questions for you. Sounds good. We'll do it again. All righty. All right, thanks All right, for joining us. All right. See you next time on the Morning Brush Show.